0: All right, grab your Bibles, go to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, looking at verses 8 and 9, and then we're going to flip back to Romans 11 um, a little bit later. But uh, we are looking at the reformational worldview. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. These are the words of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. Let's pray. Our Father and Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word and give us grace so that we may clearly understand and freely choose the way of your wisdom through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. may be seated. So this is just a, a small two-week series, Reformation Worldview, uh, and today we're going to look at the five solas. Um, but today is Reformation Sunday, and since Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox do not celebrate such things, it does, at the very least, serve as a reminder that the Church of Jesus Christ, though imperfect, needs further Reformation. We don't, we don't need less Reformation, we need more Reformation. When the Protestant Reformation broke out across Europe in the 1500s, a spiritual awakening had taken root. Men like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, and William Tyndale rose up by the grace of God to declare the truth of Holy Scripture against the diluted teaching of Rome. At the core of their message was the sovereign grace of God and salvation. Uh, you might say that that was really the central feature, the sovereign grace of God in salvation. And, of course, that stood diametrically opposed to the works-based righteousness of papal religion. Roman Catholicism was broken. Uh, medieval Christianity was a problem. And so, of course, they not only taught, but they and they still continue to teach false religion. And during during the time of the Reformation, most people were removed or disjointed from public worship and the reading of God's word, uh, Mass in Latin, and not many people knew Latin unless you were sort of on the upper class of society. Uh, priests behind the the uh, the screen doing the thing with the Lord's Supper, apart from the people. Uh, so there was a lot of teaching and, and practice that had become obfuscated at best. The, the papal entourage, if I can call them that, they believed themselves to be the gatekeepers. They were the gatekeepers of the Christian religion, and thus they were the ones to be trusted with biblical teaching. So it's, it's sort of like, we know you don't understand and can't read, just trust us rather than teaching, reading and writing and you know, some of the things that had been going on with the development of universities and so on. But they, did, they just said, hey, j- just trust us. Um, you don't need a Bible in your lap. It's fine, we got it. Um, so questions arose like, reading, read the Bible in your own language and in your own home? This is, it's, it's not necessary, they believed. And that was really, a, I know it's a broad brush stroke, but that's really what the condition was. But men like Tyndale, Uh, believed otherwise. They believed otherwise. They believed that the Bible should be available and accessible. And when the reformers came on the scene, most assuredly driven by the Holy Spirit of God, they wanted to reform the church, not start a new one. They were trying to reform what was there, not just kind of, you know, go and start our own thing. And because because of the Renaissance, which recovered the literature and art of ancient Greece and Rome, Many of the reformers were going, and many of the people were going, ad fontes, back to the sources. So suddenly, many were eager to read the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek. And Tyndale was an expert um, of Hebrew and Greek. He knew eight languages. It's amazing. A brilliant mind. Hardly anybody in England knew Hebrew, but Tyndale went to Germany, learned and then came back, and he was just a brilliant mind. But everybody was kind of going back to the sources. Um, But that also meant that they went back and read the patristics. They were going back to Irenaeus and Tertullian, Athanasius, Basil, uh, John Chrysostom, and Augustine. Uh, Thomas Bilney was one such scholar in Cambridge, England, and not many of you, anybody ever heard of that name before? Not really. Uh, Bilney, he reportedly said, after sort of an awakening of himself and going back to the sources, he says this, At last I heard Jesus. Christ alone saves his people from their sins. I came to Christ and my despairing heart leapt for joy. So there's an awakening happening with the Reformation. And men like John Huss, who was, was martyred 100 years before Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, John Huss had paved the way for a renewed commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the inscripturated Word of God. Tyndale, <clears throat> Tyndale interestingly enough, he was, he was just 23 years old when Luther, uh, rather surreptitiously, started the revolution on October 31st, 1517. But Tyndale was insistent on translating the Bible into the English language. He believed that it needed to be translated and it needed to be free from the kings and the queens and the popes. It needed to be set free, so to speak. Roughly 90% of the King James Version comes directly from Tyndale, who oftentimes, uh, when he was translating the Hebrew and the Greek, because many were working off of a bad copy of Jerome's Latin Vulgate, he said, no, we gotta go back to the Hebrew, gotta go back to the Greek, and we need to take it to English. And so Tyndale um, sort of presented a problem because the English language wasn't necessarily sufficient, so Tyndale made up words. And one of the words, for example, is scapegoat. So (laughs) from the Old Testament, the scapegoat was set into the wilderness. I like making up words, too. I think it's a lot of fun. But that word... He just sort of, okay, this is what it is, so we'll just scapegoat, throw it together, you know, drop the E for escape, and then put it together. And that became a part of the English lexicon. And 90% of the King James Version is from Tyndale in his translation into English. Now, during these years, God had laid the foundation for a world-changing movement of men and women committed to the five solas, solus Christus, only Christ. Sola Fide, only faith. Sola Gratia, only grace. Sola Scriptura, only scripture. And the fifth one, Soli Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. And we're going to talk about those later. Let's look at our text here. Look at Ephesians 2 again. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not yourselves of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. Now the Bible makes it clear that grace and faith are impregnable components regarding our union with Christ. They are essential. Grace and faith go together. And here the Apostle Paul says that salvation is strictly in terms of God's gracious work. It's it's start to finish God's gracious work. Grace means an unmerited favor. Uh, It could be goodwill or, or graciousness. But the grace necessary to save a sinner comes only from God. It's only from God. It's His grace. So God owes man nothing in this relationship. God owes man nothing. However, man owes God what? Everything. He owes God everything, including his life. So the question became, which was swirling around Europe, swirling around the Reformation, was this. Well, how can, how, how can a man be saved? How, how, how is one made right with God? And the answer is simple. It's, it's grace. <laughs> it's grace. But how exactly is grace bestowed? Well, if man has no moral privations or capital to answer God's demand of holiness, well, how can he obtain this grace? The answer is faith. Faith faith is the means by which grace is appropriated to the believer. So you think of, God gives grace, but how does it come to us? It's faith. Faith is the intermediary in that relationship. Faith um, is the means by which grace is uh, acquired. It's appropriated to us. And it is faith itself a gift, just like grace. Don't miss that in the text. Because faith, we, we oftentimes, and because of things like semi-Pelagianism, Arminianism, we'll, we'll say things like, well, God gives grace, but I'm the one who provided all of the faith to, to take it, right? I'm drowning in the sea, and uh, I reached up my hand, and thankfully I did, because then God grabbed me. And I love Sproul's uh, illustration with that. He said, no, you weren't reaching up your hand, you were dead floating at the bottom of the ocean, and God pulled you up out of that death threw you onto the beach, and breathed life into you. And that's the difference between a Calvinist understanding and an Arminian understanding. But faith is a gift, and that faith latches us onto the benefits of Christ, all of which is by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, faith's meaning is simple. Think of the, uh, how you spell faith, right? F-A-I-T-H. Forsaking all, I take him. You forsake everything, and you take Christ. And the Spirit is the one who puts that gift of faith in your regenerate heart so that you can then take that grace and receive that grace. Now, the Westminster Confession of Faith explains what faith truly is. It says, The grace of faith, whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls, is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts. And is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word. By which also, and by the administration of the sacraments and prayer, it is increased and strengthened. It is the work of the Spirit in our hearts. And that is sort of like faith comes by hearing. That's the idea. When the the gospel is proclaimed, and, and that's why we can go to the hard places, right, and preach the gospel, because it's not up to us. We're not the ones saving them we're simply being faithful in preaching the gospel but faith comes by hearing people need to hear it that's the means by which god has chosen to by his grace and by his spirit change hearts change minds it is that type of faith faith according to the confession yields obedience to god's commands it trembles at the threatenings and embraces some of these are direct quotes the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. So faith is the totality of everything. Furthermore, the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting. Accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Those three things are important and that's what the confession outlines accepting receiving and resting and that's why Paul and elsewhere goes into this conversation about look like you uh this is in Galatians if I remember correctly um you 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 came to Christ by 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 faith and by grace but you're going to be perfected by your own works <laughs> that doesn't work either you don't just rely on Christ for justification your right standing you rely on him for your sanctification every single day and you rely on his spirit within you to work out repentance to work out faith to work out obedience so that we rest in christ now the bible says that the combination of grace and faith is paul says here the gift of god I love how Calvin says it. He says, Faith then brings a man empty to God, that he may be filled with the blessings of Christ. Because salvation is not of yourselves, the Apostle Paul tells us, we bring nothing but the sin necessary for said salvation. That's all we bring. We don't bring our own goodness. We're not reaching up. We don't bring any of that. So it follows that this... It's God's gift. God is the author of salvation. He's the perfecter of our faith. And this runs completely against any view of salvation that requires stages of salvation to be achieved by the works of men. And and that's, of course, the Roman Catholic version. But that's uh, that's what Paul says precisely in verse 9. If it were based on the work of man, we would have something to boast about. Look at me, how smart I am that I figured it out intellectually that Jesus really is the son of God. You know, nobody talks like that. Nobody should talk like that. But it totally rules out any boasting in any of us. It's by the grace of God that we go every day, not because we were smart and handsome and good looking. It's by his grace front to back, top to bottom. But we have nothing to boast about at all. Indeed, we are entirely indebted to God. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones explains. He says, It is in spite of us that God forgives us. (laughs) Isn't that an awakening? It's in spite of you. It's in spite of me that God saved me, and it's in spite of you that God saved you. We are Christian not because we are good people. We are Christian because though we were bad people, God had mercy upon us and sent his son to die for us. We are saved entirely by the grace of God. There is no human contribution whatsoever. And if you think there is, you are denying the central biblical doctrine. End quote. It just says it plainly, which I appreciate. Flip back to Romans 11 real quick. Just a couple of books toward Genesis. Romans 11:36. Paul again, he says, for from him, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. The doxology here focuses on the incomprehensible excellence of God's nature, God's character, um, his utter and entire self sufficiency and independence from man, and all things being comprehended in him. What Paul says here is that God is the source, He is the means, and He is the end of all things. And that is exactly what verse 36 is. From Him, from Him speaks of God being the originator, the source, the creator of of all things. Through Him is a reference to His glorious penetration of history as the means of, of all things and the sustainer of all things. So it's not just that God made you, it's that he keeps you upright every day. And then to him demonstrates that God is the goal and end of all things, from through to, beginning, middle, end, creator, sustainer, goal. What Paul teaches is that the God who stands above time He's the beginning, he's the middle, he's the end of the story of redemption. He is the creator, the agent of historical development. Uh, We like to think that God just spun the world around and everybody's kind of doing their own thing and he's, he's away. No, every raindrop, every blade of grass, everything is under his sovereign guidance and care. He sustains every single atom. So he's the agent of historical development, but he's also the ultimate end for which all things were made. Everything was made for him. It's for him and not man. And that's why Paul says in true benedictory fashion, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Um, very dense section of Romans, and he just ends it like praising God. <laughs> to him be the glory forever. Amen. I have nothing else to say. I have gone into the depths of what God did through Israel and the Gentiles coming in and all of this beautiful talk in Romans 9 about God's election and his sovereignty. I just have to glorify God now. That's how he ends Romans chapter 11. Now, all of this is for God's glory alone. That's what we mean by soli Deo gloria. It's God's glory alone. And when we consider the sovereignty of God from beginning to end... The only real response is praise, and that's why he can't help but do so here. The God who created the heavens and the earth, as stated all the way back in Genesis 1-1, is the God who ought to be prized, who ought to be glorified, who ought to be treasured and valued in all of the earth. He's the same God who has established the Lord Jesus Christ as King and Lord over all creation. The earth is the Lord's, the psalmist says. This is no different He's the one making all things new, as we see in Revelation 22. So the the beginning of your life, from the moment of fertilization onward to to the experience of life, what you do day in and day out as we all grow old, and the goal of all life is the glory of God. The beginning, the middle, the experience, the, the history, the time. And then the goal is the glory of God. He is the end for which God created the world. And in no way, shape, or form can we really know God in His totality. But we know what we know by His self-revelation. We know God through faith. That is one aspect of knowledge is through faith. We know Him in our hearts. When God's Word, the power of God's Word, attaches us to Him, um, we know God truly, and yet we don't know Him exhaustively. Um, our brains are incapable of processing that much information. Even still, the knowledge of God isn't purely rational. That was part of the issue with the Scholastics. But it's experiential. It's an experience of the heart, the religious root of our being. So all men are in the grip of the power of of God's word in some fashion. Um, even it's like what, what even unbelievers are. Uh, They exist as image bearers, though they deny it. It's like the most offensive thing you could say. (laughs) Not just that you're a sinner, but you're you're made in God's image. No, I'm not. (laughs) Well, I know you don't think so, but here we are. But in the reformational worldview, we confess that all men are smothered by God's self-revelation, both in creation, oftentimes called nature, but also in Scripture. And that is because all things exist for the glory of God. So how shall we then live? The Protestant Reformation was a tumultuous time. John Huss, referenced earlier, was martyred on July 6th, 1415. And that was a century before Luther and Tyndale and Calvin. And he was martyred for allegedly teaching false doctrine. And uh, pardon the grotesque picture and image here, but his, his accusers, they tied his hands behind his back And there was a stake in between, running up from the ground all the way up his back. And they put a chain around his neck, tied him to the stake. And then they stacked um, uh, wood, piled up all the way to around his neck area, really close. And uh, his murderers, the murderers, we can call them that, asked him one more time, this is your last chance to recant. It's your last chance. Because we're going to light the match, and you will die. And he said a lot of things in response, but this was perhaps one of the more powerful parts. He said, God is my witness that the things charged against me I never preached, and the same truth of the gospel which I have written, taught, and preached, drawing upon the sayings and positions of the holy doctors, I am ready to die today. And they lit the match, and he burned to death all for teaching, and he was a forerunner. This Again, 100 years before Luther, but he was a forerunner of the Reformation, and he died for it. Once Luther stirred things up 100 years later, at this point, the cake had already been baked. (laughs) Uh, There's no turning back now. Uh, The cat is out of the bag at this point. The world really wasn't ready for what would come after Huss, that's what's incredible because even Huss was essentially prophesying, look in a hundred years, you're going to something's coming and you're not going to stop it. And almost exactly a hundred years later, we have Luther who inconspicuously, he he nailed the 95 thesis to the door, but that really wasn't like this magical moment. Um, he was just trying to debate the local priests and, um, but we all look back at that event and say, no, that's when things really got kicked off. But don't forget Huss, don't forget some of the forerunners as well. What many people also forget is that this time period was also fraught with political turmoil. Just to give you a little history here. Uh, Charles V, he was king of Spain, he was emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, and he was king of the Netherlands. He was absolutely brutal towards Protestants all throughout his jurisdiction. So in Spain, Italy, and the Netherlands where he ruled, he was brutally against the Protestants. And not only was Charles dealing with the Protestants, he also had Muslims, the Ottoman Turks, who were also uh, invading and trying to take territory. Uh, They were obviously interested in advancing their cause. His son, Philip II, was even worse toward the Protestants. Um, Philip II, who was king of Spain and Portugal, called for Protestants to be tortured and killed. Thankfully, Frederick the Wise, elector of Saxony, he uh, was a more righteous German prince. He's really famous for helping Luther escape from the clutches of Rome. After the Diet of Worms, where Luther was confronted by the Catholic powers, um, he had to run for his life, and Frederick helped hide him, which is like a great heroic thing, and that's really the only thing we remember him for. Now, who could forget Henry II, an evil man, he was king of France and he persecuted the French Huguenots. He, the Huguenots were French Calvinists. Uh, Theodore Beza, who was a friend of Calvin, would often help minister to his brothers and sisters, the Protestants in France. Uh, he ministered to them regularly. Henry IV also fought against the Protestants in France, but for him, uh, and he issued the Edict of Nantes in, in uh, 1598 That ended the wars and basically tolerated Protestant worship in France. When you think of the Reformation, you can talk about Germany. Uh, Many people like to go to England. We love Scotland, John Knox. But don't forget what happened in France. France was a very uh, challenging time because even during the time of Calvin, you had the French Protestants um, being killed and uh, St. Bartholomew's massacre is an event you would benefit from reading about Um, it was a a very torturous time now in england the protestants had to deal with mary tudor mary the first anybody remember what she was called bloody mary that's bloody mary she was queen of england Um, under her reign 300 protestants were burned at the stake including the famous three oxford martyrs you had hugh latimer and nicholas ridley Uh, They were burned on October 16, 1555, but also Thomas Cramner, he was the one who wrote the Book of Common Prayer, he was put to death later in March, uh, March 21st, 1556. Now while there are obviously others that could be mentioned, it was Mary, Queen of the Scots, who famously said that she feared the prayers of John Knox more than the armies of Europe which is how a good lesson in how our relationship to the civil magistrate should probably be. Now, the Reformation took root because men cared deeply about the things of God. They cared deeply about the things of God, as we should. They were not people pleasers, uh, nor were they compromisers, right? They were zealous. They were zealous for the glory of God. They were zealous for the truth about God and his word to be known throughout the world. And thanks to the Gutenberg Press... Uh, the Protestant ideas were feverishly published and spread abroad very quickly um, If you've not been to the Bible Museum in DC it's like the only reason one would ever go there right um, but go there because they have sort of a mock setup of the Gutenberg press and you can even see how it's done and it, it's it's incredible um, a lot of a lot of history there um, I think there were only I don't know if they, I can't remember if they have one, but there are only two remaining copies of Tyndale's English New Test or English Bible. And I don't know if they have one, I'm not sure. Probably in a museum somewhere in England. But the, the press came along, and all of a sudden, these ideas are published quickly, something we take for granted, because we can just get a book show up on our doorstep in two days, right? Praise be to God. But <laughs> these ideas went abroad, and, and as you can imagine, this became a threat to Romanism and their tight grip on the Holy Roman Empire and the surrounding nations. But perhaps the greatest contribution to Christendom was the development and the summary of Christian doctrine in the five solas. And those five solas stood in direct contradiction to Romans papal, uh, Rome's papal religion and tradition. So what are they? What what do we mean when they say them? And I'm just going to kind of go through these and then we'll be done. First, we have sola scriptura. Sola scriptura. In the Roman Catholic view, only the Roman church can interpret Scripture infallibly. (laughs) Go figure, right? (laughs) Just trust us. We have it. Um, And I've been to the Vatican. I went through the museum. It's very fascinating. Lots of history. But I didn't go to where all the conspiracies take place in the basement. I didn't get to go there. But in the Catholic view, you think of individual responsibility, what we call the right and duty of private judgment. right? And reading the Bible for the infallible truth that it is, for the Catholics, they said, no, that's not how it works. You don't get to just read the Bible on your own with you and the Holy Spirit. Well, the Protestants, well, let me say this. For Rome, the Bible's authority is essentially subject to the church's authority. Now, they wouldn't necessarily say that, but that's practically how it works. But to the contrary, the Protestants, the Bible alone contains the truth about salvation, the truth about God and his revelation. And while it is helpful to know what others who have gone before us have said, you know, reading Augustine's Confessions or something like that, and it's just invigorating reading some of these writers from, you know, over a thousand years ago, The truth remains that only the Bible is infallible, not men, especially not a church uh, that perceives to have a leader who is infallible himself. So when we say sola scriptura, we mean that councils and popes and churches can err, but the Bible cannot. It remains our authority as the Holy Spirit-inspired and scripturated Word of God. Uh, 2 Timothy 3 all Scripture is God-breathed. It's profitable for teaching, right? For, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped uh, for every good work. So Scripture alone is God-breathed and authoritative, not the church. We would not say the church has the same authority. Um, that's not really po- Protestant doctrine. So sola scriptura and tota scriptura. Scripture alone and all of Scripture <laughs> alone. The second one is sola gratia. Rome teaches that we are saved by grace with an additional cooperation of our free will. (laughs) Because of the influence of men like Thomas Aquinas, no doubt a brilliant man and shaped much of Western culture, I would argue for better and for worse, But many Roman Catholics believe that the rational part of man was unaffected by sin. And grace comes at baptism, they teach, but the grace has to increase in your life through various works, the the seven sacraments, praying, taking the Eucharist, doing, doing all these good works. And if that fails, you have time in purgatory to be purified, fear not. I love these Reformed folks up here who are... Boo! Um, <laughs> now, the Protestants, of course, they rejected this formulation, opting instead for the clear teaching of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, referenced earlier. Um, we are saved only by the grace of God, and while we are supposed to grow in our sanctification, and we're supposed to participate in the Lord's Supper, baptism, right? That, those are things we're supposed to do. We're supposed to do good works. We should be charitable towards people, our brothers and sisters, especially in the household of faith, Galatians says, but also to the world, who who is our neighbor, right? All those are good things, absolutely, but it's the grace of God alone that changes our natures so that we willingly then obey the Lord as he gives us strength by his spirit to do so. So it is grace alone because it's God's gift alone. Man does not contribute. I'll say it once, I'll say it again. Man brings his sin to God and only his sin to God. Man's mind was corrupted by sin, and that's why we have to have the mind of Christ. Third, sola fide. F-I-D-E. Sola fide. Faith alone. The the Roman church believes that we are saved by grace through faith, along with our good works. And oftentimes they'll cite passages like Galatians 5-6, faith working through love, Um, When they do that, of course, the papists insist on man's cooperation in salvation. The Protestants came along and they said that true faith does not cause, well, true faith does cause uh, work through love. Absolutely, that's what true faith does. But it isn't the start of salvation, it's the result of salvation. Big difference. We are saved and made right, justified in God's eyes, by grace alone through faith alone. Faith is the instrument of God's sovereign grace. So to clarify, good works come after the faith is exercised. And even that faith is only exercised because of the Holy Spirit who gave the gift, changed the heart, and now you can exercise good works. Now, no one disagrees that works are are, uh, important. We're all on the same page on that. But the works that James insists on, because people think Paul and James are, are not on the same page here, the works that James insists on are measured in the quality of the faith, not the quantity, the quality. True faith is alive and working, right? True faith is alive and it works. Dead faith doesn't do anything except parade self-righteousness. And God doesn't give dead faith to people. When the Holy, its not like the Holy Spirit. It's like Russian roulette here. Well, is this going to be good faith or bad faith? And no, men already have bad faith because they worship themselves or an idol. But the faith this the Holy Spirit gives is is a a faith that is alive, right? It's something uh, that it, that moves and is active. It's vibrant and vivacious in our lives. So, you know, God doesn't give dead faith. That's something sinners contrive. Fourth, solus Christus, Christ alone. Solas S-O-L-U-S, and then Christus, Christ with us at the end. Roman Catholics believe that Jesus died to gain our salvation. Anybody disagree with that? So far, so good. They are wrong when they insist that Mary, the mother of Jesus, along with the priests, bishops, cardinals, and the pope, that they act as mediators. This is why the Protestants' critique of Roman theology is important. And when it comes to praying and worshiping Mary, they will deny it. We don't worship Mary. And yet they'll go to an abortion clinic and rub the rosary, pray to Mary, and leave, uh, offering no real gospel. But Protestants differ, of course, because they believe Jesus is the only mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 says it very plainly that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. That's it. No one in creation, no thing in creation is to function as a mediator between God and men. That role belongs solely to the Lord Jesus Christ. No pastor, no elder, no priest, no husband, no one is a mediator between you and God if it's not Christ. Jesus Christ alone is man's savior, but he's also man's priest, which means that nothing is to cover or diminish or shade the brilliance of Christ's glory. And the whole picture of salvation is painted with nothing but Jesus Christ. So we go to Scripture alone to find that it is Christ alone who saves. And then finally, fifth, Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. Rome believed that all honor and glory and praise belonged ultimately to God seems agreeable the Protestants believe that since God declares the end from the beginning and since he is the is ultimately sovereign over everything including man's salvation Protestants came along and said well yeah the honor and the glory and the praise belongs to God period period Rome gave honor and glory and praise to the Pope if you're lucky you can get close enough and kiss his ring and maybe touch the funny hat. But he's a mere mortal man with a sin nature and need of salvation. Protestants rejected the Pope, calling him an Antichrist, rightfully so. And thus the glory truly belongs to God alone. When we understand Romans 11.36 properly, right? For from him and through him and to him are all things to, to him be the glory forever. Amen we conclude that there is no room for human glory, right? Uh, he is the creator, the sustainer, the goal of everything. The, the, the glory is completely and entirely God's. Um, Isaiah 42.8 is abundantly clear. I am Yahweh, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. The Protestant Reformation recovered the centrality of, of Biblical religion in every area of life. It was the Protestants who rejected both the form and the content of papal religion. It had forsaken all of these basic elements. And we ought to laud them for their courage. And indeed, they had a surplus of courage. And I would say that we probably should mimic them in that courage today. But we ought to do more than simply mimic their commitment to a truly biblical, truly reformed understanding of, of creation, of sin, of man, of redemption. Um, you know, the redemption we get in Christ alone. Um, we thank God for God's work during the Reformation, and we pray for God to do a similar work in our day because we need it too. So when we reflect upon what God has done in history, He's faithful to his covenant, right? He is, he is good. He is gracious. He has been faithful to each of you every single day, even when we haven't been faithful. But he is faithful. So we thank him for it. And may you, dear, dear church, rest in these wonderful truths and rest indeed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are holy and righteous and self-sufficient and glorious. And we approach You with trembling, knowing that we are not that. We are only what we are because of what Christ has done, what Your Son has done. And so we thank You for the salvation He has given us. And we pray that You would help us to rest in that, to cease to striving. And know that you are God, the psalmist says. Give us the grace each day to look upon our baptism, to look upon our salvation that you have given us, and to be humbled by it. To not be those who are given to complaining and murmuring and and bad attitudes. Help us to be grateful and full of thanksgiving for the great work that you do in our lives and the lives of others. And we pray, Father, that by your spirit you would do a great reformation. Another one. A worldwide reformation where hearts and lives are changed, churches repent from their idolatry, child sacrifice ends, statism goes away, and that we could truly live free under your law and your kingdom. So give us the courage to see the task at hand and help us and aid us each day. And it's through Christ we pray. Amen.